The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. I'd like to take a moment to thank those of you who have started to send in your audio recordings of your memories of traditions, customs and other pieces of folklore for the Big Record project. These are being transcribed and archived as we speak, and there have been some excellent submissions. I'll put out a bonus episode soon of the kind of material that's been sent. I've had a number of people comment to say what a great idea this folklore collecting project is. So, if you would like more information on taking part, please email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and I'll send you an information pack. Remember, you don't need to go out and interview other people if you don't want to. You could just sit at home with a drink and a snack and record yourself talking on your mobile phone or computer. Just mail in the file and it can be added to the archive. Quality isn't important, it's the content that matters. Also, if you have old audio recordings or films of folklore interest, drop me an email and I can discuss them with you. Thank you. I hope this will become a really useful archive for the future. Today on the Folklore Podcast, as the weather begins to improve, we take a look at the folklore of plants. My guest for this episode is Lisa Schneider. Lisa is a storyteller and environmentalist based on Dartmoor. She seeks out stories about the land and our complex relationship with it. Lisa trained as an ecologist and has worked in British nature conservation for over 20 years, in roles as diverse as farm advisor, lobbyist and conservation director. Since 2012 she's worked with Devon Wildlife Trust, leading the Northern Devon Nature Improvement Area programme. I visited Lisa at her home to record this interview. There are some slight background noises at times because of this, which wouldn't normally be apparent on these studio recordings. I make mention of these at the start of the interview, and hopefully they won't be too distracting for you. 
Lisa, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to sit here at a table in your house with, uh, for the benefit of those listening as we're talking about the environment and plants and things, uh, the gentle sound occasionally of somebody hedge flailing. Yeah, late in February, you. they're a bit late, I have to say, but uh, there we are. It'll all add atmosphere and ambience <laughs> to the interview, I'm sure. Um, let's start, if, if we may, by uh, talking a little bit about you. Uh, what you write about, how your interests in folklore developed and and what your interests in the folklore areas are particularly. My real interest in folklore comes through storytelling and I work with the storytelling tradition, Um, the tradition of just telling stories and sharing stories in the telling. So actually in storytelling, writing things down is secondary. Really? Absolutely. So in the storytelling tradition, the notion of stories that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation, just in the telling and the way those stories have changed and moved, is something that it's um, a complete privilege to be involved in as an art form, yeah. as a way of helping to bring out different ideas and different inspirations. and. In that, um, another part of my life comes in, which is that I am a conservationist. I've been working with wildlife organisations for well over 20 years now. And I have been lucky enough to spend my career in helping to benefit nature and helping to try to restore the nature in the British landscape that has been so badly depleted over the last decades. So marry those two together, and it was inevitable that I ended up looking for stories of land, stories of landscape, stories of plants, stories of animals, and trying to find traditional story of our relationship with other, our relationship with nature, our relationship with other species. So do you find that through your work you are rediscovering folklore and story that has been uncommon in more recent times. Do you find that you're recording new aspects of this that we haven't come across lately? Or or are you kind of promoting these aspects of folklore to people through the conservation? Or does it go both ways? It's quite interesting because conservation is a scientific discipline. Um, We are trained as scientists. We look for evidence-based Um, ways of trying to achieve change. And that is the correct thing to do in the physical realm, isn't it? Um, So, for example, I was at a meeting with farmers last week up in North Devon all about this terrible tree disease called ash dieback that is starting to really get a grip on the British countryside now. And it will kill 95% of our ash trees. So, That is a nightmare. Ash is the second most common species in Devon in terms of tree species. It's the most common one out in outside of woodlands, in our hedgerows and in the fields. And all of these trees are going to die. So from a physical perspective, we are there as a wildlife trust saying, you know, we'd like to work with you farmers to try to help to manage this terrible thing. Um, Yes, there will be a lot more wood fuel around, but how about looking to replant with other species to make sure that the wildlife in the landscape can still enjoy those trees as habitat to make sure that we still have the landscape we treasure? Are you thinking about replanting? 
and what species will you do that with? Now, that's kind of uh, the the language of the physical realm, the conservation yeah. realm. And yet, every so often, there was a question about plant folklore. You know, how do we associate with ash trees? What are the most important, notable ash trees in our landscape that we care about, that we maybe have relationship with in a strange way, relationship with a tree? But how do we then treasure that folklore and how do we work with that understanding and find out more about how we relate to that species to help us almost move through that change because things like ash dieback bring up very very difficult emotions of grief and of loss so you're starting to move into the non-scientific immediately and while anyone who manages land needs to be very practical about it there are also those emotional connections and it's those emotional connections that we can explore safely through story um, without feeling that some of those um, emotions are perhaps leading us into wrong decisions in a physical way. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And of course, we do have a very, very close relationship with the landscape and with plants and with trees, more so than we would probably either A, care to admit, or B, realise, actually, mm. when I think about it. So, I mean, talk, talking about the ash, just as an example, mm. the ash is a very, very strong plant in folkloric terms. We find lots of things associated with the ash. So, just give an example of how the ash and its folklore fits into what you've just been describing. There's a lot of examples of ash folklore where ash is considered to convey a blessing on people that have um, had some misfortune. Um, strangely, that's sometimes involved with a shrew as well, but that's uh, all a bit odd. <laughs> Let's talk about the ash more as the world tree. That's probably yes. uh, a little less esoteric. Yeah. So... Um, Ash in both Celtic and Norse traditions is considered to be the world tree, the tree that connects everything together. And in the Norse, um, Yggdrasil, the ash tree, connects all of the nine worlds. And interestingly, the ash tree itself survives Ragnarok. It survives the end of the world. And you get these two humans um, going into the ash tree, into Yggdrasil, and surviving the great um, destruction of everything and coming out afterwards, after Ragnarok and repopulating the world. It's an arc, it's an arc tree, as well as the world tree that is there throughout all that mythological cycle. So immediately you then encounter ash and you think differently about it. You look at this thing not just as a tree, you look at it as a way of connecting and the imagination starts, and we're away. And I think I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that within our own subconscious is this kind of um, collective memory or, or folk memory that goes back generations. Um, you see it, I find it in my areas of research with black dog folklore, for example, it's the reason why people describe things using terms that people 200 years ago described things without realising that those people had done the same thing. Yes. Uh, and that applies very much here, doesn't it, as well? I think it's the reason that people have such a strong connection with the outdoors and with plants is because they 
held so much meaning in the past and that has carried forward generationally through our subconscious perhaps without us realising it. I think so, yes. And I think also some of those things can be very practical. For example, um, looking at ash, the vast majority of the Anglo-Saxon wars would have been won with spears made out of ash. If we were living in medieval times, if we were anything other than a lord or a lady, we would have had um, a bowl that we ate all of our meals out of, and that would have been made of ash. Um, These things were not only there as some kind of other to be revered, they were part of everyday life and everyday death as well, um, particularly if you're an elm tree. So all of these things um, are very interconnected, and I think... Sometimes we we can be a little too precious um, in thinking of these things as always magical. There's a there's a huge amount of practicality. Sometimes not always good. There's um, there's a story called Crooker, quite a famous folk tale from Cromford in Derbyshire, where uh, a man is travelling from from an outer village to Cromford, and he keeps getting warned. He keeps getting this little old lady pop up by the side of the road and telling him. Um, really turn back. I really wouldn't carry on if I were you. And these little ladies give him uh, poses of flowers as a as a blessing against Crooker. They never say who Crooker is. And the traveller is hurrying on and hurrying on and it's getting stormy and the clouds whizzing past and the moon keeps getting lost and he finds himself down by the river and there are a number of great ash trees by the river and they are looming in the shadows of the moon. And he's hurrying and hurrying and hurrying, and he suddenly realises who Crooker is. It is an ash tree, and the ash tree is chasing him, and the shadows of the ash tree are coming over his head and in front of him and trying to to claw at him, and he keeps throwing the flowers behind him. That is not a friendly ash tree. That's not a a lovely thing to revere over there. That's, That's a really dark spirit. And of course, he eventually escapes. Um, maybe not, of course. <laughs> there are other folk tales out there where they just don't escape. It's never a given, is it? Never no. a given. But yeah, all of all of these things, to me, um, they are little snippets of how we can connect more closely with our landscape. That's that's the thing that really interests me. And I'd like to come back to that in a little bit. This personal connection with the landscape and with plants, because I, I think it is very, very meaningful and important area to discuss um but before we do let's talk a little bit about your book your last book i should say <laughs> botanical folk tales which came out last year it came out last, last year, year yes. through the history press yes uh, and this is a collection of folk tales from across britain and ireland that relate to plant law tell me a little bit about how you came to write this When I first started storytelling, which is quite a long time ago, um, I would go to see other storytellers at work. And being someone who's into nature, I would go to nature reserve events that were held by wildlife charities or things like that. And you often find storytellers at that kind of event, at a family event. Um, At best, they can be there to really help to add to the proceedings. At worst, they can be used a little bit like a creche for the little ones while the adults go around the nature reserve. But nevertheless, um, you find storytellers really, you know, adding sparkle to events like that. But I would sit and listen to some of these storytellers and they would be telling stories um, 
stories to do with wildlife, usually stories to do with animals, but those stories would usually be from other countries. Um, there would be coyote stories from America, there would be Anansi stories from Africa, there would be all manner of different tales, but very few stories from this land, very few tales from Britain about the plants and animals that just happen to be surrounding the storyteller and the people who were listening to the story. And I'd be there going, well, what about our stories? They exist. Of course they exist. There's been many, many people collecting them and telling them, where are they? And that curiosity led to this book, really. Um, for me, this book is just a start. But not only did I want to find the stories to tell them, but I wanted to make sure that there were those stories presented in a form that those people working in environmental education, like Forest School or like Wildlife Trusts or any number of different environmental educators could use, that they could pick this up and they could have a go at telling those stories themselves. Because that is what the storytelling tradition is all about. It is actually about passing those stories on and the listener hearing that thinking, oh, that story's got hold of me. I like that story. I don't know why. But if they then tell that to the other person, that is the tradition alive and kept going. So that's really the, the reason behind the book. And the stories in the book came from a lot of different sources, um, from folklorists, amazing folklorists like Ruth Tung, you'll be very yes. familiar with, oh, yeah. who had a thing for plants. She did. She had an absolute thing for plants. She did. Some of her stories ring more true than others, but <laughs> that's a different that topic. a lot of Ruth Tung's collecting. Yes. But, um, uh, it's a point that I've made before, actually. It's still equally as relevant. Because folklore is looking at the way that stories change and develop and travel over a period of time. So when we're looking at a story of um, fairy lore or something relating to plants mm. or a haunting in a particular building, we're not looking at it with a the scientific conservationist eye and mm. going, what well, is this genuine? How did this come about? How can we verify this story we're looking at why people experience this why they tell this story and why this story now seems different in some aspects to how it was 50 years ago and the same in others so the fact that um for some of ruth tongue's folklore collecting some salt is also required at times doesn't make it any less interesting or useful when you're looking at the way that those stories have Traveled. I agree completely. Yeah. I think um, there were a couple of Ruth Tung stories when I was researching this that the the nature aspect of them was more American than British. Mm. And it seemed to me that it might have been a story that had gone out there and come back, yeah. as you very often find with stories that actually traveled from here to places that people have emigrated to. It doesn't make them any less valuable. But Trying to find, this is the other thing about storytelling. Some stories work for the teller and some don't. And there's no rhyme or reason for that. Uh, there may be a story in this book that I, I chose because I loved it that someone else may read or try to tell and it just doesn't quite work for them. That's okay. That's all right. Um, so there are things going on with stories that we don't necessarily understand and can't necessarily put into words. But for me, this book is a collection of stories that I have worked with 
um, that I have told and that I wanted to share, really. Um, there are some stories in the book. Um, there's a there's a, an Irish story in there about ragwort, um, which is all about a lazy chap, and they're usually called Tom. This one's called Tom, and uh, he's wandering along and he finds a leprechaun. And the leprechaun thinks very little of him, but Tom grabs hold of the leprechaun because everybody knows that you must always keep eye contact with the leprechaun because otherwise they're away. And he demands the leprechaun shows him where there's some gold. And the leprechaun leads him through a very, very difficult journey, um, through hedges and lots of problems for Tom. Tom doesn't get the message still. And the leprechaun eventually takes him to a field of ragwort and points at a particular plant and says, gold under there. And that's where Tom makes his fatal error, because he realises he doesn't have a spade. And he lets the leprechaun go, he ties his hanky around the ragwort, and he goes back to find a spade. And of course, when he comes all the way back through that difficult journey across the countryside, he gets back to the field, and every single ragwort plant has got an exact same hanky tied around it in the same way. Um... I told that, I think it was in Torrington, I told that, and uh, a kid piped up and said, how about cinnabar moth? What colour's the hanky? I went, oh, okay. So that hanky becomes orange and black striped, and, and you start to... <laughs> We're making our own folklore here. Yeah. But that's that's all part of the joy of telling the stories, really. It is, yeah. And that's how folklore perpetuates and how stories move on is is through the retelling and mm. through the addition of other elements and the subtraction of other elements and the fact that they do resonate differently for different people it would be a very dull world if they didn't mm, absolutely we'd all enjoy the same things and we'd all hate the same things nobody would ever eat a sprout ah stories of sprouts there's something to research anyway you can put that on the list with what we were talking about before we started recording which was the fact that there is very little folklore relating to daffodils there is very little folklore relating to daffodils rather disappointing it is considering that we are in daffodil season at the moment as i sit here and look out the window the sky is blue spring is very much springing at the moment i know this because i was forced to go out and mow the lawn yesterday oh bad luck i know these mm. things have to be done um and, and as i look through the the contents of your book um aside from some of the stories like crooker which which don't give any indication of the plant law that's involved at the time you know words jump out at me um you blackthorn these sorts of things. Mm. Um, so as, as we sit in this particular springy time of year, um, what's causing interest to you at the moment? What's in going the folklore on? world and plants? Well, I have to look at the amount of blackthorn blossom that's plastered all over the hedges at the moment, apart from your chap at the back who's flailing. <laughs> um, so there is this thing about a blackthorn winter. The notion that as soon as that blossom comes out and as soon as the blackthorn blossom is really full and gorgeous, that is when the cold snap comes. That is what a blackthorn winter is. And blackthorn is a really, really interesting plant. It's a very witchy tree, isn't it? It is. Um, but it seems to have different guises at different times of year in folklore. Um, there's a particular story that um, is a Ruth Tongue one, actually. It comes from Oxfordshire. And it's one of my favourites in the book. 
Um, it is about a farmer who wants to cut down the blackthorn tree in the middle of his field and none of his farm workers will touch it. And they all say it's because of the fairies. And of course he um, has a real go at them and says, well, I'm just going to have to do it myself and goes and cuts the tree down. And it's strange the notions you get when you're telling stories of the different things that are happening as he cuts that tree down as those blackthorns, because thorns on blackthorn are really nasty, nasty, nasty things. And the tree is almost clawing at him. And he can't help himself. As soon as he has managed to finally cut that tree down, he has to dig under the roots just to see if there is fairy gold there. Just to check. He doesn't believe it, but just to check. And of course, he finds nothing but a whole pile of dried leaves. And he satisfies himself. This fairy stuff is rubbish and then turns to go back up to his farm and gets over the brow of the hill and his entire farm has been burned to the ground. And the the little refrain of the story, because all the way through he's telling the farm workers, load of old rubbish, mm-hmm. and they turn around to him and there's a little voice saying, load of old rubbish, mm-hmm. and they've got their own back. That's a very blackthorny story to me. That That's one element, isn't it, of... Um stories involving plants which we find in other areas of folklore is is this kind of warning Mm. element Mm. Um, if you mistreat this plant there will be consequences Mm. or if you remove this plant from your land there will be consequences is that something that you find in very many examples there's a lot of that in story although it doesn't necessarily always make sense Uh, The fairy justice is not a logical thing. Um, So one of the other big things at this time of year is gathering primroses. And you must never have fewer than 13 primroses in a bunch. Did you know that? I did not know that. Because otherwise that, that will bring great bad luck on you. But if you dare to go and collect primroses at a certain time, the fairies may still have you. Um, There is a quite a famous story called the Weirdale fairies of a little girl who goes and gathers primroses and brings them back to her father and she is over the moon they're beautiful he is terrified because he knows they will come for her at midnight and there's no doubt about it um so there are certain rules that you break at your peril but sometimes the fairy world will just meet out the justice anyway for the hell of it um so yes it It would be lovely to think from a logical point of view that the stories are telling us some kind of ecological warning. Treat it badly and and you will get your just desserts. But I'm not sure it's quite as simple as that. That seems too neat. That seems too neat. It rarely is in these cases, isn't it? Um, But it's not all bad, is it? There is plenty of folklore which uh, is celebratory of, of plants as well. Give us some examples of that aspect. There is a, a story um, from Cornwall. Um, it's it's kind of a changeling story, this thing of a, a mother having a baby and the fairies stealing it away and putting a fairy in, in the baby's place. And usually the fairy has got a good taste for whiskey and uh, some choice swear words going on there as well. This isn't quite like that. This particular version of the story from Cornwall is about a mother who's into gin. And she and the father are a bad lot and they don't look after the child properly. And it gets worse and worse and worse until they get back from the pub one night and the child is gone. 
And of course, they are completely distraught and swear to live a better life. And yet for a good two or three days, the baby is still gone. But they find the baby in, um, you know, the way that a gorse bush can sometimes collapse in the middle. They find a baby in the middle of a gorse bush that's collapsed in the middle. And the baby is all wrapped in fine cloths. And in between all of those fine cloths, in between each layer, there are wildflowers wildflowers of all kinds. It's as if the child has been protected and been given blessing by the fairies. And that's that's a very beautiful image to me. And you often find the blossoms come up in stories like that. Yes, that, that's kind of, um, I guess that relates to new life, doesn't it? And, um, and kind of the beginnings of yes. something. Yes, absolutely so. Now, there's lots of connections in, in these stories to fairy folklore, and, and rightly so, because we are in the landscape, mm. and yeah, that is where most fairy lore is rooted. But there are lots of other aspects too, aren't there, where plant lore is relevant. And I'm thinking of things like um, divinatory practices, and superstitions, mm. and uh, medicinal purposes. Lots and lots of different ones. Do you cover any of those aspects at all? There are a few of those in here. Um, I'm thinking particularly of the hemp seed story, which is quite a nasty story. Um, It talks of um, a young girl getting together with a lad who is above her station and getting pregnant and the family disowning her and the lad being sent away to sea. And there is this story of her waiting and waiting and waiting for him and having the child and being with her parents and not being able to wait until he comes back, this unrequited love thing. Um, And she is messing around with a friend at Samhain at uh, the turn of the year, at the dark time of the year. And they are messing around with an old custom using hemp seed. Um, And that hemp seed... Um, There is a tradition, and sometimes it happens at Midsummer, and sometimes it happens at Samhain. But the rhyme is, hemp seed I sow, hemp seed I grow for my true love to come after and mow. And she walked around the church nine times, and she threw the hemp seed behind her as she said those words. And then turned around, and there was her lover. There was the lad from the ship. But he was looking so angry. He was looking so angry at her that she was terrified and she and her friend fled from the churchyard. And the story tells of the boat coming back to Cornwall but being shipwrecked. And the lad was one of the last to be brought onto shore but he died there on the shore. She didn't know, her family didn't know, none of them knew, they were a long way away. But that night there was a knock at the door and she opened it and it was him. And he carried her away. He was the spectre bridegroom. He carried her away on his horse. And he was carrying her away to take her down into his grave. Um, So it's a story which talks of divination gone wrong. Um, It did tell of her lover, but apparently this young lad, the day before the shipwreck, had told one of the others on the ship that he'd had a dream where this girl had 
called him away and called him back to her and he didn't want to go and he was furious and he swore he would make her life hell. So he actually didn't care for her at all. I'm really glad that you chose that example because I don't know whether you are up to date on listening to the podcast, but the last episode of the podcast looked at Valentine's folklore. Yes. So those people who are up to date will know that that rhyme also fits in with the divinatory aspect of Valentine's Day, which is on Valentine's Eve in this area of the country, at least in the southwest. Um, then you could use hemp seed to see a, a vision of who your intended was going to be. Mm. And the rhyme that is connected to that divinatory practice is that rhyme. The same rhyme? Yes. Wow. Yes. So whether that story is using the divinatory aspect of wanting to know who your intended is going to be and twisting it into another version where you're trying to call your partner back mm. or not, I don't know. Mm. But it's interesting that that occurs in two slightly different aspects of the same thing. And the divinatory, Valentine's divination says that um, your um, intended will appear, in some cases your intended will appear wearing a shroud hmm. to collect the hemp seed, but there's no indication as to why a shroud is part of this. That's but, interesting with this story because it has such a severe um, warning to it that once the spectre comes in, anyone associated with that spectre dies. The girl dies, her friend dies. It's um, it's as if a great anger has been unleashed in the story by doing that spell. So, yes. So it's interesting. That's two quite different aspects, but both connected mm. to the love divination yes. part. Why hemp seed, though? Why hemp seed? Good question. Good question. Because hemp was a lot more common, wasn't it? It was grown as a crop and it was asked to be grown as a crop. And yes, I don't know. Yeah. And we probably never will. No. It's interesting. Though. Who knows? There is another little story in here which is very much of this time of year. It's a story that was connected, collected by Marie Balfour um, over in Lincolnshire. Now, she was um, a doctor's wife in the 1880s, something like that. I think I've got that right. And she, uh, the story goes that she would not allow the patients in to see her husband until they had told her a story. And so she collected a number of different folk tales from, from Lincolnshire. One of them is called Green Mist, and it talks of people waiting for spring and waiting for the green mist to rise off of the land and waiting until that happened before they could go ahead and uh, start working the land and start really making the most of the springtime. And it talks of all of those, they would go out every morning, they would turn over earth, they would leave food on the window ledge, they would be waiting for the spirits to come, they'd be waiting for the green mist to come up. And it's a very sad story of a young girl who was taken ill and she was waiting for the green mist because she wanted to see the green mist one last time before she died. And there was something about the wish that she made um, associated with the cowslip. And in this story, she gets a new lease of life. 
As the cowslips flower just outside the gate of her house, she gets a new lease of life, and once one of those cowslips is picked by a young man who picks her a flower and gives her the flower, she starts to fade again. So her life is almost linked to the life of the flower at the end, which is a very sad story, and it's not the usual association with cowslips either. They're a happy thing. But, yeah, that's that's quite a poignant story for this it time is. of year. It is. Before we move on <clears throat> and just spend a little bit of time talking about this kind of personal connection aspect, I just wonder whether uh, most of the stories that we've discussed so far have been rooted in tradition, hmm. or in, in, they are older stories. Is there a similar collection of modern folklore related to plants, or is that kind of go a different way now? I think the classic on that is Richard Maybe's Flora Britannica, where he went out to collect... Um, People's understanding and experience of wild plants now, well, this was in the mid-90s, he put a great call out for modern folklore, much as you're doing with your with your um, folklore work. And that is a wonderful resource because it collects from all over the country all of those little rhymes we used to tell when we were little and all of those um, different aspects. But it keeps changing. I would love to know, for example, the folklore of Himalayan balsam which is a non-native invasive species that is plastered everywhere now. It's a real pest. Um, it causes us a lot of problems on rivers because it takes over and stops any other plants from establishing. But, uh, you know, you start to hear little stories about people using the stems of Himalayan balsam as pea shooters and mm -hmm. different things like that. And you're thinking, well, this thing keeps developing. Mm -hmm. So it would be lovely to hear more modern stories. Um, you do see the occasional thing. You do see the occasional reworking and the occasional modern story. There's a story in the book um, that I use quite a lot, which is a story about two farmers arguing in a field. And that is not an ancient story. That is not filled with fairy. Um, it's, it's a ridiculous story about two farmers arguing over land, and it, it makes me laugh, and it's got a very clear point to it. But you do hear the occasional story that kind of pops up and you know, I wonder where that did originate from because all stories start somewhere. They do, absolutely. Uh, and you're right, that is the whole point of, of the recording project which is going on at the moment uh, for me. And, and people have started to send in their memories of all sorts of different aspects mm. of folklore. And it is as simple as just sitting down and recording yourself on your phone and, and emailing in the results. So... Mm. Hopefully, people will have similar stories relating to plant law in modern times as well as in uh, older beliefs. Um, yes. And if any of those come in, then we can sit down again and discuss them later. That would be fantastic, fantastic to hear. And Maybe somebody's got something about Japanese knotweed to <laughs> justify its existence. It's know, probably a lot know. of stories about neighbours arguing over Japanese knotweed, yes. I can imagine. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in that. But there is quite a big difference between folklore, which can be just a snippet, grab a nettle bite stem or something like that, and an actual story which has a beginning and a middle and an end. And um, th there is really quite a big difference there. Um, they're both wonderful things. So they always say the shortest folktale in Devon. Do you want to hear that? Go on. Okay. Two farmers standing in a field. 
It always begins with two farmers standing in a field, and the first farmer says, Here, I don't believe in ghosts. And the second farmer says, Really? And then he just disappears. I love that story. It's great. It is a great story. Okay, let's go out into the field then, if you like, now, and talk about this aspect which is very important to you, which is this personal connection mm. between uh, our beliefs and our traditions and our stories and the world around us. Mm. Talk on that subject for a little bit. I don't think any of us in the modern world connect enough with the natural world, with nature. I know I certainly don't. And I work in nature conservation. <laughs> Our lives these days are not intrinsically bound up with nature. Um, we, more often than not, don't grow our own food. Um, we may go out into the wilds if we're taking the dog for a walk or if we're driving through it. But um, actually being with nature is something that we are fast losing our connection with. And... I think that all aspects of nature, with science being the primary driver behind conservation and that fact and that evidence, that's very, very important. But I'm reminded of a, a story walk that I led last year out on Dartmoor. And it was the height of summer. It was beautiful. And we ended up in a meadow um, full of butterfly orchids and all of us seemed to go into this field and start identifying species we started to say oh i know the name of that and i know the name of that and i know the name of that one and oh what's what's that what's that look it up look it up there is that sense of satisfaction in knowing the name of something which is powerful in itself but what then what then have we lost our ability to actually be with nature and live in it with a number of different aspects to our lives. So to me, storytelling about the land is part of that um, rich experience because learning about the story of what's there and what has been there and what has happened there, whether that's human or non-human, is all part of the experience and the history of the place. So in seeking out those stories, what I hope I can do is bring some inspiration from a different angle into nature conservation. So that the science does its bit, but we also allow more rain for our emotions and our curiosity. That aspect of names actually is quite interesting and it just makes me think about the fact that there is so much folklore attached to place names yes why a village is called what it's called why a pub is called what it's called does that carry through with plants and place names yes why is this called this it's to do with this aspect of plant law chagford the next village over that's gorse that's all about gorse. There are many, many places that are, mm. uh, are named after plants. Yes, um, I mean, all of this is all bound up in our everyday lives now, but very often we're so used to it, we don't think about it. Um, we're so used to all of the wonderful hedgerows we have in Devon. Most of them are medieval in origin. Mm. 
we're so used to them, we just don't think about it, let alone stop and look at what's going on within that hedge or what's happening around. So it's it's just a different way of finding connection, really. And do you think we still see children and adults, for that matter, uh, relating to plants in a traditional way? I'm thinking about things like... Um, plucking petals off a flower and going, she loves me, she loves me not, that, that kind of aspect. Are we still seeing people doing these things? I think so, yes. I think that those kinds of things um, are still around. People still pick dandelion clocks and blow them, don't they? Yes, try and tell the time. You can't resist it. Yeah. Yes, I think all that stuff is still there. I'm, I don't necessarily subscribe to the notion that all is lost. I think nature is in big trouble. I think we do need to change the way that we live. But I think there is so much to celebrate there and so much to find out there. Um, and so many wonderful places still around to explore. That's one of the things that really excites me about plant folklore and plant story. Um, it's not just some abstract thing in the imagination. It's actually out there. It's actually out there. I like that. There's one whole other aspect which um, is probably another episode all to itself. So uh, if you're happy to do it, I would love to do uh, another episode in the future to look at this. And that is the use of plants uh, for traditional healing and the folklore that's attached to that. Um, Tracy, my wife, has been doing a lot of research in this area as well because of her writing on kind of early modern witchcraft and these sorts of things. And she's been going through the archives in the records office and has come up with loads and loads of fascinating examples of, of using both animals mm. and plants for that. Um, is that something that you've looked at? I've looked you? at it while I've been doing the story research. Yes, I've been really interested in that. That would be fun. I think we should get together at some point and do a whole <laughs> separate conversation fun. on that because there are some really, really good stories yes. that come out yes. of that as well. Um, in the meantime, um, let's just finish by um, you telling us your favourite plant-related <laughs> story that you came across in your research. They are all my favourites. They are all my favourites. My favourite of the moment. Okay. That will be a disclaimer. So um, there is a Scottish story all about um, a young girl called Breed and the oldest goddess of all of them, whose name is the Kaliach. And she is the one who made the mountains of Scotland. So there is a story where she captures and she imprisons Breed and the more beautiful and stronger breed gets every day, the weaker the Kaliak gets. And it is a story about the way that spring develops and stops and starts all the way across Scotland. Um, and it is a story which talks not only of the land and the plants and the snowdrops that come up in every single footstep that breed takes, but it tells of the winds and the storms and the mountains and the seas. It is a, it's a whole landscape story. Yeah, that's my favourite for the minute. Just as we've come out of Imolk and as we're heading into springtime. <laughs>
it's a, it's a good time to have that as a favourite. Um, if people want to find out more about this work, and they should because we've only scratched the surface, <laughs> and, and there really is a lot a lot to find out. Um, where can they go to find more aspects of your work online or elsewhere? So I have a website. Um, the web address is lisaschneider.co.uk. I've got a great British name, haven't I? You have. Yeah, you wouldn't believe both my parents come from Bedfordshire, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to spell it. It's L-I-S-A-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-A-U. Or you can just search for Tales from the Wild and you'll see you'll see the website there. So there's details there about my storytelling work, about the book, um, Botanical Folk Tales of Britain and Ireland. And there's also details there of the storytelling work that I will be doing this year. And more and more events will go on there as the story year develops, really. It's looking quite exciting. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, and I am currently working on Woodland Folk Tales, and that will be the next book, which will be out early next year. And I'll put a link to your website on the Folklore Podcast website so that people can go straight through and, Thank and you. check out what you're doing on there as well. So Great. If they didn't get the spelling of your name, providing <laughs> I have typed it correctly, they can just follow the link. That would be great. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. I've been waiting to do this interview for a little while now because we live not very far from each other. <laughs> uh, but as always, when you live close, it takes a long time to actually get something organised when you're both in the same place at the same time. It but does. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Lisa for sharing her stories and research for the podcast. Lisa will be back on a future episode of the podcast where I'm hoping to sit her down in a roundtable discussion with Tracy, who's been looking into 17th century recipes for medicinal purposes, a subject which has some crossover with Lisa's work. You can find links to Lisa's website and book on the guests page of the Folklore Podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman, Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>